the Sunday Sermons Podcast. This is a six in a series called Game Changers. We've been remembering that Jesus never intended to just kind of tweak things a little bit. He wanted to absolutely change everything. That's still his goal. And to follow him means that we become game changers as well. We're going to focus almost completely just on Jesus and what he did today. I think that's only appropriate. But we're going to start and end with one of the best ways he told us to honor him, which is what he wants us to do about it. Here's what Three Rivers Collaborative says about this concept that we're talking about today. Transformative churches have a clear and compelling understanding of why they exist and what they are called to as a faith community. They can articulate their identities and missions. People at every level of the church can clearly answer the question, what is the story that we are called to live out as a community of Jesus followers? And further, they express this focus in their allocation of resources and communal practices. If you missed some of those terms, uh, you can go back and listen to some of the earlier messages there online in a bunch of different formats. But again, today we're going to walk through the story of Jesus. One more thing first. How many here love roller coasters? Who are the people just, you love them? Uh, let me see the people you won't get on if you're paid. It's not going to happen, okay? And maybe some of you are somewhere in between. We love all of y'all, but whether you love them or hate them, I think you'll understand what I mean by this. Uh, if you're going to ride a roller coaster, there's a kind of a process before you get to ride it. And, and depending on how you look at things, it might start actually when you just decide one day, I'm going to go ride roller coasters. Maybe it starts when you get in the car and you head that direction. Maybe it's when you buy the ticket. Maybe it's when you get out of your car and lock it. There's so many steps. You finally get to, you get out of the big line just walking around Dollywood or Six Flags or wherever you are, and you actually stop at that roller coaster's line. Maybe that's where it starts. There's so many parts. But eventually you get into this long zigzag pattern. You know what I'm talking about? And you're there for a while. But it's still not too late. If you really panic, you could still get out. But, it, but, but eventually, you get lined up in these little rows, and then there's no going back because you get in the car, and they lock you in, and they press that button. You know what I'm talking How many of you know what I'm talking about, whether you love roller coasters or not, okay? For us, as we look back at the story of Jesus... We're going to walk through the whole story. You could say that it starts at several different parts, and you'd be right. They're, they're, he was preparing, getting ready for what we're going to celebrate next week the whole time. But this was the moment that he got locked in. The parade that we're celebrating today is the day that every, the final buckles get put on, the final lock, and they hit that button. There's no going back. There's no, excuse me, I, I, I really I changed my mind. There's nothing left. You're riding the ride. And Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. And that's what we're going to celebrate today. All the way back, uh, over 500 years before Jesus was even born, God spoke through the prophet Micah. And he said, but you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. They didn't know exactly what this meant, but they knew that this Messiah character was eventually going to come out of Bethlehem. Even people way far away knew that. Now, you're familiar with the Christmas story? Ever heard that one? That's a good one. Yeah, they knew this was coming. 
But as many times as I've heard this story, something came out of our Wednesday night discussion at the adult Bible study that, that I just never thought about this one detail before, and it, it blew my mind. did some more research on top of what they already told me. It was really cool. If you've ever been around animals and bred animals or, or paid a lot of money for a really nice animal, you know that you don't get a perfect animal easily. You have to breed them. Do you know what I'm talking about? You can't just race any random horse. It's got to be a thoroughbred horse. And there's certain bloodlines that people pay a lot of money for for a good reason. Is this making sense? And yet there's dogs and then there's show dogs. And I could go on and on, but you, you know what I'm talking about. There's this thing. So wouldn't it make sense that there would be special breeds and special, special bloodlines of lambs if they really need about a quarter of a million perfect lambs every single year at Passover? Wouldn't that make sense? Well, it turns out they did. It, it, it happened in a little town about six mi miles south of Jerusalem. The shepherds around there primarily raised lambs for the Passover. This little town was called Bethlehem. I don't think it's an accident that the Lamb of God was also born there. And I don't know how, this story is so many layers deep. Mostly what Jesus was doing on that day, on this day that we're celebrating today, was claiming to be the Messiah. But we're going to spend just a little bit of time talking about how he was also claiming to be the Passover lamb. And if you really want to dig really, really deep with that, there's a guy named Alfred Edersheim who wrote a book in 1883 called The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah. And anything that's in addition to the stuff that you've heard over and over and over ultimately traces back to that particular work. And if you're curious about that, you should read that. Here's some of the stuff that he said that, I, that may be true, but even if it's not, <clears throat> excuse me, wow, excuse me, let's try this one more time. May be true, even if it's not, the story is still magical. But if this is true, it just blows my mind entirely. He said that the shepherds in Bethlehem had to inspect the babies when they were born. And when they did, they would wrap them in swaddling clothes just like they did babies back then. I, that's the only source I know that says that. But wouldn't that just add even more icing on the cake? Anyway, if you're curious, you can go read that for yourself. Here's what we know for sure. From the time that Ezra and Nehemiah rebuilt Jerusalem after the exile, Bethlehem was the place that almost all of the lambs for the Passover came from. So obviously it would have been that way in the time of Jesus. And on the 10th day of Nisan, which was their month that sort of corresponds to our April, the 10th day of Nisan every year, they would parade these lambs into Jerusalem six days before the Passover. And all of the families would pick one out. It was called Lamb Selection Day. And they'd take them back to their houses and they would rub their feet with oil and inspect them and make sure they were perfect and then watch them, inspect them for four more days, which I think probably made it all worse because wouldn't you think they'd get a little bit attached to them and stuff where they had to kill them? I think that was probably part of the plan. It was really sad. And then two days before the Passover, two days before the Passover, they would also anoint their head with oil and that sealed the deal. That was their Passover lamb. Just kind of hold that in the back. Like John just said a second ago, God's plan to do something huge about the sin problem goes all the way back to Genesis, all the way back to when sin first enters this world. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, he starts dropping clues. By the time you get to Genesis 22, that's where Abraham is asked to sacrifice his son Isaac. 
And God instead offers a substitute sacrifice. Amazing story uh, in and of itself, but also even more that it's already pointing even more clearly toward the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus. There's also many others, and I don't have time to go through all of them. I'll give you one more that seems unrelated, but I don't think it is. When Joshua led the Israelites into the promised land, guess what day that was? The 10th day of Nisan, six days before the Passover. The first Passover they celebrated in the promised land. There's just layers and layers here. And one of the things that they did as soon as they crossed the Jordan River was they built a pile of rocks as a memorial. Some people believe that this, that's what they, Jesus was talking about here. Because in the middle of the parade, we're going to come back and talk about the parade in a second, but let's jump right into the middle of that story. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Everybody's going crazy and saying that Jesus is the Messiah and freaking out. And they're saying, hey, tell everybody to settle down. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, quiet the stones will cry out. I personally think he meant creation. All stones. But some people think he was specifically referring to that memorial, those stones. I say they count as part of the stones in creation. So that too, maybe all of the above. Are you with me? But the more you read these stories, as familiar as they seem, there's just layer upon layer upon layer upon layer. And every time I read it, I go, that too? There's so much intention. So there's so much stuff. And whether God meant every little detail deliberately or not, there's so, there's no way that you can miss the intention behind it, the planning behind it. Christ embraced his mission. Let's say that out loud. I want this to stick. Christ embraced his mission. In fact, almost every detail of Jesus' life, not just the big parade on Palm Sunday, every detail of his life in one way either fulfilled a prophecy or harmonized perfectly with some sort of a symbol or some sort of a theme that you see elsewhere in the Bible. One way or another, the things he did, the things he said, the places he went, the people he recruited, how many people he recruited in each little group of his life, layer upon layer, there is intention. The Apostle John starts his story all the way back before creation itself. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were made through him, and without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of man. It starts all the way back even before what Genesis calls the beginning. And then as soon as Matthew and Luke jump in, they start, they have a genealogy. This also shows so much intention. And then they talk about his birth in Bethlehem. And then there's just so much more. John, his, he notes that the very first two things Jesus did was turn water into wine, which demonstrates power over, I don't know if you know this or not, but it demonstrates power over molecules. He literally can create and recreate things. There's only one person who can do that the creator. And then the very next thing he does is the first time he goes and clears out the temple. Before he taught a lesson, before he did anything else, he clears out the temple. Because they were using the temple not only to cheat Jewish people, but they were using the spot in the temple called the court of the Gentiles, the one place that was set aside for people who were just curious about God to come and watch. 
So if they showed up at all, what they were seeing was people cheating each other. A lot of corruption. And they were just walking away. First thing Jesus did, officially embracing his own ministry without his mom coaxing him into it, was to clear out the temple. And it goes on. Before long, he's not only talking to the Jews, but he's going to Samaria. That happens in John chapter 4. And there's some of the first people to, in mass, embrace him as the Messiah. But before too much longer, in Luke 7, we see him bring someone back to life. We see the first time somebody comes to anoint him. That time it was a sinful woman in the house of a Pharisee. And that kind of kicked off a lot of the really bad stuff between him and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Then he starts healing on the Sabbath, and he starts teaching radical new things, the Sermon on the Mount and beyond. But he wasn't trying to be a bad Jew. He wasn't trying to change everything. In fact, he said very specifically, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law and the prophets. Most of the stuff that we actually see about Jesus, most of the stories, much of the teaching actually happens around him celebrating certain feasts and the Sabbath. If you pay attention, he was very faithful Jew. He was just trying to reclaim what it was really, truly all about. So now we're starting to get into this story. You still with me? The Feast of the Tabernacles would have happened in about September of the year we would call 27, 27 AD. And Jesus is, that, that's kind of him turning off the car in the parking lot at Dollywood, okay? It's a year before this parade, but he's starting to head that direction. And on the way, he takes them through a place called Caesarea Philippi, which was a very dark place that he didn't need to go on the way there. All four Gospels record this. It's in Matthew 16, Mark 8, Luke 9, John 7. As in everything that I'm referring to today, just rattling through all this is all in the sermon outline slash Bible study that you either have in your hands or a very easy access to digitally. But that is where Jesus, for the first time, just point blank asks him, who do you say that I am? And Peter answers with what we now call the good confession. I believe that you are the Christ the son of the living God. And both of those titles meant that he knew that Jesus was the promised one, the one that was promised all the way back in Genesis, the one that was called Messiah in Hebrew, called Christos in Greek. And then we just take the Greek word and mess with it a little bit, turn it into an English word, Christ, or substitute a more familiar word and say Savior. They all mean the same thing. The only one who could save us, son of man, son of God, King of kings, Lord of lords, all the titles that Jesus had point to his uniqueness and that he is a complete game changer. Instead of adding one more possible truth, quote unquote, to the mix, he said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He said, I am the good shepherd. Everyone else is a thief that comes to steal and kill and destroy. Is he sounding kind of familiar to you guys? I sure hope so, but this is what we're celebrating. It's not just a parade. This whole thing is leading up to it. But that is also the day, right there at Caesarea Philippi, that he says, I will build my church, my kingdom, and the gates of Hades will not stand against it. Caesarea Philippi was sometimes called the gates of Hades. I think that was not an accident either. 
He also made what I personally call the big prediction there. I've never heard anybody else call it that, so you don't have to. Uh, you don't even have to call it the good confession. If you believe it, it's true. We're good. But the good, big prediction is this. For the first time, right now in that same conversation, he says five things. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to suffer at the hands of the religious leaders. I'm going to die and be buried, and I'm going to rise again. And from that point on, about a year before all of this happened, he starts saying that over and over. And he starts kicking over all the dominoes one by one on the way to the cross. Jesus fulfilled his calling. And that's what we're celebrating here. This, again, is the moment that he locks it all in and says it's going to happen. Next week, we're going to dig even deeper to some of the symbolism we're just hinting at today. But this is, this is already it. He's locking it in. He is fulfilling his calling. Here's what we know about Jesus. He knew exactly who he was. He knew exactly what he had to do. And not only that, he knew how he had to do it. He knew where he had to do it. He knew the whole thing. And this is the moment. If there wasn't another moment, there were countless moments first. But this day, this parade, this procession into Jerusalem and him accepting the praise of the children and everybody else who was celebrating him. This was the moment that he says, let's go. I'm the only one who can do this and I'm going to. During that last year, we get a lot more peeks into Jesus and the special ways he was trying to prepare his people. He took his inner circle, Peter, James, and John, up on a mountain. They got to see him transfigured. They got to see Elijah and Moses show up next to them. And again, he's seeing the law and the prophets and him fulfilling it in the unity of the whole thing in ways that they didn't even start to understand that day and barely could years later. But time goes on. We see several more stories and teachings from Jesus around December of that year, 27 AD. What we would call Hanukkah, the Bible calls the Feast of Dedication, the Feast of Lights. If you didn't know this already, Hanukkah isn't one of the feasts that God created. Hanukkah was added about 165 BC. It celebrates a military victory and a big miracle that God did that they wanted to keep remembering, so they added it into their thing. But Jesus very clearly observed this feast every year as well. And it was about that time, roughly, that he again claimed to be the Messiah and almost got stoned to death but escaped. That's a cool story if you never heard that one. But not long after that, between December of that year and spring of the year 28, he does something even crazier. He lets his friend Lazarus die. And he waits four days before he brings him back to life. But then he brings him back to life. And this is significant because Jesus had already done some amazing miracles along the way. Made some outstanding claims that barely could be backed up at all unless somebody did a miracle. And then he'd do the miracle. So many of those stories. They're so great. Every single one of them. But even the people he'd brought back to life up to that point, it was kind of in the moment. And if anybody was really skeptical and really didn't want to believe and they really just would not accept that his claims were true, they could have said, well, maybe they weren't really dead. But with Lazarus, his friend, 
He makes sure that he's good and dead and starting to decompose. And then he brings him back. This was an in-your-face declaration of the power that he had. And still, over and over and over again, he's saying to them, over and over, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to suffer at the hands of the religious leaders. I'm going to be killed. I'm going to be buried. And I'm going to rise again. And they're like, what? Huh? It wasn't registering, but it kept down. We're almost to the parade. Remember what I told you about the lambs, though? Listen to this. John 12, verses 1 to 3. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. And here, a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. If you remember, they show up in a story earlier when Jesus visits them. And Martha serves and gets mad that Mary doesn't help. Remember that story? And Mary's worshiping Jesus, listening to his stories. Even then, Lazarus is there, but we don't really know much about him. Same house, same family. Then Mary took about a pint of Pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Just like the little lambs. And then all four Gospels record what happens next. John says it's the very, very next morning. But there's this parade. And even with all the extra layers about being a Passover lamb and all the other stuff, what he is un Doubtedly saying here is that he is the promised Messiah. The whole thing with the donkey, that was all about a prophecy in Zechariah 9, verse 9, that says, Behold, your king is coming, gentle and riding on a donkey, the foal of a beast of burden. So Jesus says, Hey, I need you to go get a donkey foal to let me ride on it. <laughs> That's a dumb thing to ride on, but he was very intentionally fulfilling this. They knew exactly what he was talking about as it comes. And that is why the crowd responded the way they did. That's why they said, Hosanna, which means save us, the only one who can save us. There's no one English word or phrase that implies that. But if, if your house is burning down, you see the firemen coming and they're, they've got the ladders and you're upstairs and you go, help. And all you say is help. But in that moment, you're saying, help me. You're the only one who can help me. I'm going to die if it's not for you. That's Hosanna. Are you with me? It means all of those things. And they, that's how they respond to Jesus. Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the son of David. In other words, blessed is the one who's going to inherit the kingdom of David. Going to be the one who promised, God promised to save us. And after the big parade is over, he gets off the donkey and he clears the temple again. And then for four days, he makes sure that he's in public view all day long. Does that sound kind of familiar? And then two days before the Passover, he gets anointed one more time. And he says, that woman's story will always be told wherever the gospel is told because she's getting me ready for my burial. And the whole time. He keeps teaching relentlessly all the things he wants them to remember. A lot of the stuff that we have that Jesus said that's still written down that we study over and over in whatever context actually comes from that last week. Those four days of intense teaching and prophecy. 
and, and, and writing these stories he called the parables. But all of this was to say, we're locking it in. It's going to happen. I'm going to die. I'm going to be buried. I'm going to save everybody. Brothers and sisters, as we start to wrap up today, this is what I need you to remember. We have to follow Jesus' example. We have to follow his example. See, Jesus saved us. He didn't do all of that stuff. All of that preparation, all of that planning, all of that pain, all of that suffering, all of that stuff, that was not just so that you can go to heaven when you die. How ridiculous would that be? Why would that possibly be worth it to him? He had so much more in mind. That's like saying, I want to have kids because I just like to hold a baby of my own. Well, that's a cool moment. How, how many parents are out there? That's a cool moment, right? Holding a baby of your own. Is that why you had kids? Is that the best moment? No. That's the first moment. That's it. That's how it starts. That's the beginning. You put another person on the planet. You buckle in. Somebody hit that button that day. Let me tell you something. Do you know what I'm talking about? But that's only the beginning. He had so much more. He saved us from sin and into freedom, from a hopeless life of just trying to please ourselves to a life of purpose, a chance at unity, a chance of eternity, of course. But there's so much behind what he wants, and he expects us to give our lives to share this opportunity with everyone. You remember that moment in Caesarea Philippi we looked at just a little bit ago? Guess what he also said there? As soon as he told everybody all that stuff, that, yep, you're right, that's who I am, and here's those five things that are going to happen, Mark 8, verse 34 to 38. Then he called the crowd to him, along with his disciples, and he said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Is that something we're going to do in heaven? This is an easy answer. Is that something we're going to do in heaven? No, that's right here, right now. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it, is it, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? What can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. One of my more modern heroes, he's not that modern now, it's almost 100 years ago now, but is a missionary named Jim Elliott who gave his life trying to reach some people in Ecuador. But I love this quote from him. I've shared it here before a while back. He says, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Let's say that together. Would you say that with me? He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. I love how the Apostle Peter puts it. He says, since you call on a father, I'll get it up on the screen here so we can see, I'll see it together. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life, handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, 
but was revealed in these last times for your sake. And through him, you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and hope are now in God. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart for you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. Jesus died and rose to give us eternal life, but that eternal life starts the moment you give your life to him. Heaven's just the last, final, best chapter. It starts now. And if you're holding back today, I'm begging you to stop. I'm begging you to just throw it all at his feet. Throw your coat on the ground and let his donkey walk on it. Wave the branches around and say, Hosanna, save me. You're the only one who can. And I don't know what you're struggling with today. I don't know if it's the first time you've ever given your life to Jesus or if you've been running from him and you need to give it back. I don't know if there's sin in your life you need to repent of. I don't know if there's some big thing he's asking you to do. I don't know if it's a relationship you need to fix. I don't know what the specific thing he's calling you to do, but I'm begging you this morning to shout Hosanna and throw it at his feet and follow him. Don't hold on to the stuff that you can't hold on to. Don't waste your time. Gain which you cannot, that which you cannot lose. G.K. Chesterton says, Christianity has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and not tried. The more times I read that over and over, the more I believe it. Here's what I know. Some of you know exactly what God's calling you to do today, and you're just trying not to. Some of you, you really want to. You want to do something for God, but you don't even know what he's saying. Maybe you just need to listen more today. I don't know what. But if he's calling you to do something right this minute, I'm begging you one more time. Come. As we all sing, as we're, this song actually says, Hosanna. I want you to celebrate from the bottom of your heart, but I'm asking you, if he's telling you to do something, do it. There will be people waiting at the back this time to welcome you, my dad, possibly some others. There are going to be people at the back. If you want to make a decision, this is a day to make it. Come back there. We're going to all stand. We're all going to worship God together.